Welcome to the Father Jim Willig Gospel Teachings Podcast, presented by Heart to Heart, a Catholic media ministry. Father Jim was a well-known and much-loved diocesan priest from Cincinnati, Ohio. Inspired by God's Word, for many years, Father Jim presented a weekly Bible study on the Sunday Gospels. In 2001, Father Jim went home to the Lord after a battle with cancer, but his recordings and teachings live on to inspire thousands. First, we hear from Father Jim's good friend, Jesuit priest, Father Michael Sparrow, who opens this podcast by proclaiming the gospel reading. Then, Father Jim's illuminating gospel teaching follows. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Luke. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of the regions of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Licinius was tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the desert. John went throughout the whole region of the Jordan, proclaiming, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one crying out in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The winding road shall be made straight and the rough ways made smooth. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. The Gospel of the Lord. I guess by now it's no surprise that during this Advent season, and specifically the second and third Sunday of Advent, we always hear John the Baptist appear to prepare the way of the Lord. Luke specifically presents John the Baptist as the last of the greatest prophets, heralding the coming, the Advent, of the Messiah. And the Gospel peculiarly begins with this historical note of this tongue-twister of names, Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, Herod, Tetrarch of Galilee, Philip his brother, Tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, etc., etc. What Luke is doing is setting the stage for the coming of Christ, rooting it in human history. In other words, he's establishing a historicity, that is, the actuality of this event. That's not any kind of mythology, it's factuality, it's a history. And so, as Luke sets the stage, he then says, And the word of the Lord was spoken to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. This short phrase the word of God was spoken to John, sets John apart as a prophet. This is the biblical expression for that. A prophet is someone you know who hears God speak to him or her and 
then turn, they speak the word of God to others. John is also mentioned that he's the son of Zechariah. This connects this passage to the earlier infancy narrative in Luke. Remember, Zechariah heard this message from the angel Gabriel that he and his wife, Elizabeth, beyond years of bearing a child, were to conceive this child by the Holy Spirit and that he would be filled with the Spirit to prepare the way for the Messiah. So we know who John is. And there's another interesting note I'd like to just highlight, and that is the fact that John appeared in the desert. Now, Scripture scholars would suggest that John the Baptist may have been a member of the desert community known as the Essene community in Qumran, a place near the Dead Sea. Some of us who are on the pilgrimage to the Holy Land might remember that place. So I'd like to take just a moment to describe this community because it does give some historical background to appreciating who this great figure of John the Baptist was. The Essene community lived as a monastic community in isolation in the desert, and it was way out in no man's land. They wanted it that way because they wanted to withdraw from the world because of its evil ways. And so, like maybe someone who would go join a cloistered convent or monastic hermitage, John went, most probably, if not this community or something like it, to be a totally dedicated to living God's ways. And this particular community in Qumran followed a very strict discipline and aesthetical life, which certainly describes John, John the Baptist. They also devoted themselves diligently to the study of the Hebrew scriptures. When I visited the remains of the Qumran, which are still well preserved because of the desert arid climate, you can still see the little rooms that are used as scriptoriums. It's where they copied multiple parchments of the sacred scripture. And these were then kept and hidden in the caves surrounding that hillside. They were like the libraries where, they, where these community members lived, which, by the way, they also were celibate, so as you could guess, they died out. <laughs> it's interesting the different habits they had. One of the great rituals that they practiced was a continual water purification rite, and they had these baths. They are constantly, as was the Jewish custom, to cleansing themselves in a spiritual ritual, to purify themselves of any sin or contamination. Now, you could see how this would all affect John the Baptist, who later came on the scene preaching this baptism of repentance, the washing of the ritual of entering into the Jordan. Let me say also parenthetically for your own edification and education, it was back in 1947 that a 15-year-old Bedouin shepherd discovered one of the ancient scrolls that were hidden in these caves in Qumran. The way he discovered it is he was searching for his lost lamb or goat and he threw a rock up in a cave and he heard something break and it intrigued him. So later the next day, along with a buddy of his, he explored this cave and unearthed eight 
earthen pottery jars. He was looking for a buried treasure and was disappointed to only find these parchment scrolls of ancient manuscripts, not realizing what a treasure he held in hand. To make a long story short, because he actually sold it to somebody else for like a pair of shoes, who in turn sold it to somebody else, and somehow, by providence, a biblical archaeologist got hold of this and realized the great find, came back to further explore these same caves, and they found over 900 pieces of what is now known as the Dead Sea Scrolls, discovered in over 30 of the surrounding caves. And it has been the greatest discovery of modern biblical research and study. These scrolls contain the ancient documents of the sacred scripture, along with many of the commentaries and habits of this monastic community in Qumran. Interestingly, also, is the fact that these ancient copies, which are the oldest we have and are preserved to this day in the Shrine of the Book, the museum in Jerusalem, they almost match perfectly with what we have handed on much later written in the manuscripts of the sacred scripture. They found almost the entire manuscript of Isaiah the prophet, who is quoted in this Sunday gospel, and it's, it matches it uh, nearly perfectly, which tells you the great care that these ancient people gave to the writing and the handing on of the sacred scripture. So just for your edification, you can now say, I know all about the Dead Sea Scrolls. All that being said, now we get to the heart of this gospel and the heart of John's preaching. And we hear that John went about the entire region of the Jordan, which parenthetically was the very vicinity of the Essene community, proclaiming a baptism of repentance, which led to the forgiveness of sin. Here is the heart of John's preaching, a call to repent. You can almost picture him, can't you? You know, this camel's skin hair with a leather belt around his waist, which the other Gospels detail and we know to be the clothing of Elijah of the Old Testament, suggesting this image of the greatest prophet of the Old Testament, Elijah. Here is John, the last of these great prophets, announcing the greatest prophet to come, being Jesus. And he comes calling for repentance. The Greek word in Luke's gospel is for repentance is metanoia. Now, you can really impress somebody if you remember this one. Metanoia is the key word that means literally a change of mind or a change of heart or a change of life. The word we might use today in a religious sense is conversion, to turn around. And in the gospel, as well as the entire Bible, conversion always implies two things. It implies first a turning away from sin, and it also secondly implies a turning toward God, or a new way of grace. For John, this turning away from sin, which is what we call repentance, and turning to God, which is what we call faith, is symbolized best in the ritual of entering into the River Jordan. 
where we stood as some of us pilgrims and entered into that same waters to bless ourselves. And that's what we do each time we bless ourselves when we come into church with holy water to remind ourselves that we need to be constantly entering into these waters to purify us because there's all kinds of contamination that gets inside of us. This thinking, thinking, we're all guilty of, you know. The, the way we have negative thinking, hostile thinking, the unhealthy feelings that swim inside of us. These, all these things need to be purged. We need to be cleansed of. It's a wonderful little ritual we have in our churches to bless ourselves with holy water that we could be purified of anything that's not of God. And so then, that being said, Luke quotes Isaiah the prophet, which we believe and he certainly felt perfectly fits John when he says, A herald's voice crying in the desert, Make ready the way of the Lord. Clear him a straight path. I keep hearing that God's bell melody, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. That's John's theme song. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. In ancient times, did you know that when a king planned to travel to an out-of-the-way area of his kingdom, which may not have been well developed by way of roads, he would have sent a courier to go in advance of his travel to inform the townspeople to prepare the roads for the king's coming. John the Baptist similarly comes on the scene to announce that the king, the Messiah, is coming. So prepare the way of the Lord. Mend not your roads, but your way of life, so that Christ can come to you. Isn't that a beautiful thought of, that can be quickly applied to us? We need to ask, well, what can we do to prepare this Advent for Christ coming directly and completely into our hearts and into our homes? Which raises the question, you know how people often complain that God feels silent or at times distant from them. We often wonder when we pray, it seems as though the phone line is disconnected, you know. I heard someone say to me this past week that she was crying out for God, needing desperately to feel God's presence and receive His help. And she was hanging on the end of her rope, ready to give up her life, in fact. And she called me out in this desperation, and as I heard her relationship, she went on and on about how she's crying out for God, and, and never, God just has totally abandoned her. I asked the question that we might all ask ourselves, and I've learned this only because I've been there. <laughs> how often I think I have felt that abandonment by God. God seems distant and silent. And I only remember later on, after some people have helped me see with a 2020 vision of hindsight, that oftentimes it is something in us that's obstructing us from hearing or seeing or experiencing God coming to us. 
In other words, we are putting some roadblocks in the way for God to come to us. And those roadblocks may be our resistance to changing a situation. Until we change that situation, how can God come to us? You know, Or we're trying to stay in control and hold on or hold out in a certain way. Unless we let go, then God can't come to us. That's why they say, let go and let God come and work. You know how if we don't trust in the Lord, He doesn't have an open path to come to us. And other times if we have this mountain of pride, it certainly is a great obstacle to God breaking through to us. Fortunately, I was able to listen to this particular woman share her concerns, and then present a different perspective on what I thought God was clearly communicating to her. I pointed out that, don't you see that these friends trying to help you and in your family trying to speak to you is and could be God's way of communicating and coming to you? It was so obvious to me, but I've been there. When it's my problem, it's obvious, I guess, to everybody else but me. So this is why we need that prophet to John the Baptist in all our lives, someone to speak the truth to us, you know, because we can't see it when it's us and we're in the mess of it. Remember that bumper sticker? Have you seen it? If God feels far away, guess who moved? <laughs> well, I'd like to rephrase that because it makes us feel totally at fault. If God's far away, look at it another way. And that way is to ask the question, what is it in me that may be obstructing God's way of coming to me? What is it in me that needs to change in order that God could then break through to me? And if that question has really helped me and so many other people, what I'm suggesting is this, God's absence or his distance could be the result of something in us, oftentimes unconscious part of us, that's holding God off or holding God at a distance. Does that make sense? So we need to, as John the Baptist said, clear that way to make a way for God then to come through. And understanding that, then we could appreciate the beautiful image that Luke ends this gospel passage for this Sunday, taken from the words of Isaiah the prophet, every valley shall be filled. The question to ask is, where are the valleys in my life? What is it that's missing in my life that we need to take care of so that God can make a straight way to us? Every mountain and hill shall be made low. What are the mountains obstructing our vision of God, our experience of God? What are the obstacles that stand in the way between God and me, or God and my family, or God and my community? The winding ways shall be made straight. All right, I need to ask, what's out of line in my life? What's not in line? What's a little crooked? What is the warp thinking that needs to be straightened out to make a clear path for the Lord? Or finally, the rough ways made smooth. What are the rough goings on in my life that need to be smoothed out? What relationships <laughs> maybe? 
What do we need to do to have God come to us? All that being said, let me pose this question that I think we would do well to ask ourselves this second Sunday of Advent, and namely, that is, what if John the Baptist were to appear here? What would he say today? Imagine for a moment that John the Baptist came to this podium and stood before us and gave his teaching. What would he say? A corollary question. And how would we respond? These are great questions that I've struggled with them myself, and let me share my insights, as I'll invite you to do later yourselves. I think that John the Baptist would proclaim, much as he did in the Gospel, we just re-looked at, the same need for repentance. I think he would echo again this Gospel message that we all need to be continually converted. We all need to enter into this constant purification rite. We all need to come closer to Christ. And to do that, there may be some clearing out of some of the clutter in our life. Now, how do I think people will respond? Present company excluded? <laughs> I have to say that. <laughs> I think John the Baptist appeared in church on Sunday. You might ask, how do you think the people in your parish would respond? Well, I think John the Baptist would obviously upset a few people, don't you? You know, he's not a kind of guy to be politically correct. He would just lay it on the line. He would be straightforward. He wouldn't mince words. He wouldn't pull any punches. Boom. This is what I see. He called a spade a spade, and he called a sin a sin. We have all other kind of euphemisms today, you know, for sin. John would just put it on the line, which is interesting because I think of what Dr. Carl Menninger, one of the former dean of American psychiatry, wrote a book not too long ago entitled, Whatever Became of Sin? And he went on to describe that we are living in a society that is so prone to deny those things we don't want to look at or admit to, particularly our sins. And so he says that we live in a don't blame me society. It's this whole tendency in all of us is to find fault out there instead of looking inside ourselves. So John the Baptist would certainly turn that around, which is what conversion is, turning it around and looking at yourself. You know, we tend to find fault in others. And I do it, we do it all the time. Often unconscious of our own faults and failures. Sin is something like pollution. We know it's a problem out there, but we just fail to see how we're participating in it and need to do something ourselves. And to do that, we need to change some of our habits. So uh, the question is, what would John the Baptist do? What would he say? <laughs> If he came here today, I'm quite sure he would point out first where our sin is and ask us to identify the sin in our life so that we could figure out how to turn away from that sin or remove that obstacle to the Lord. And I think that would upset some people because that would necessitate changing ourselves. And changing is usually unsettling. 
True. I mean, psychologists tell us we're all creatures of habit and we live in certain comfort zones and we don't like to change the course of our life. It reminds me of a story um, that was related to me some time ago. Evidently true story. It happened when these two battleships were out on sea in a military maneuver. It was awful weather. Night had already come upon them, and there was a heavy fog in the air, so the visibility was extremely poor. The captain of this one particular battleship was up on the bridge of the ship, carefully drawing the course for their ship, when they saw a signal light shining on the starboard bow ahead of them. So he had his signal man send a message we are on a collision course. We advise you, change your course 20 degrees. Back came the signal to them. We advise you to change your course 20 degrees. This did not make the captain very happy. He said, the guys, send back the message. We advise you to change your course 20 degrees. I'm a captain. The signal came back to him. We advise you change your course. I'm a second-class seaman. Well, this infuriated the captain because this was insubordinate behavior. So he gave one more signal. We advise you change your course 20 degrees. I'm a battleship. Came back the answer. We advise you change your course 20 degrees. I'm a lighthouse. <laughs> True story. It does illustrate that there's something that's a little stubborn inside all of us. It's, I don't have to change, you change. And fail to see that we all need to change. And it's difficult to change our course in life. And John the Baptist, as a true prophet, would always disturb the comfortable and comfort the disturbed calling us to adjust our course in line with Christ. I also believe that John the Baptist wouldn't stop there. Remember, there are two points to conversion, turning away from sin. In the second, I'm sure he would press this point even more, that we need to turn toward Christ. Remember, John is known for always pointing people to Christ. Jesus must increase, I must decrease. So John, if he were here today, would certainly point his finger to the Lord and where we can discover and experience the Lord in our life in this season of Advent. We need to ask the questions John, I believe, would ask. How can we turn more to God now? Where do we find the Lord in our life? How do we experience his presence? So how can we come to a closer relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to Father Jim's Gospel Teaching. We hope you have been inspired and will subscribe to this weekly podcast and share it with your family and friends. The mission of Heart to Heart is to proclaim the good news of God's Son, Jesus, to the entire world. For more inspirational teachings by Father Jim and Father Michael, visit our website, www.htoh.us May God bless your heart and the hearts of all your loved ones.